Let's pray. Father, grateful to be here this morning to be able to proclaim your holy, abiding, life-giving word. Thank you, God, for, uh, for the Bible, for all 66 books that you've inspired that remind us of who you are and the promises you've made to your people and your character and your attributes and and how we're to um, live in light of who you are and your character and your promises and your attributes and who we are, who you see us as. And so God, I just pray that, um, that as we kick off this book of 1 John, this letter that John wrote to the church. Uh, God, I pray that that you'd be honored and glorified, that we would be edified. I pray, God, that as we look at do this uh, overview, introduction, that would just whet our appetites. We want um, more of you and more of your word and to understand more of your love and your promises so that um, we can, in turn, Um, live in submission to you, our good and loving God. So have your way with me this morning. I pray, God, that you would have your way with each of us and that we'd be encouraged and instructed by the Spirit through your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, good morning. Good morning, church. Today we start a new sermon series from John's letter, his first letter to the church. At Windsor Community Church, our preferred pattern of preaching, if you've been with us for a while, you know this, is to preach through a book of the Bible. And that is um, maybe um, differing from uh, a topical approach. A topical approach, we would pick a topic like love or or you name it, uh, marriage, and we would teach uh, what the Bible says about that. But we most of the time, probably, I don't know, 60 to 80% of the time, we teach through books of the Bible. And you may be asking, well, gosh, there are 66 books in the Bible. How do you determine um, which book to teach through next? And we believe it or not, we have a, we have a methodology for this. And first, we, we take a look at where we've been the last couple of years. What books have we taught through? And uh, we spent much of this year, the first... Uh, gosh, five-eighths of this year, a little more than uh, half of this year, teaching through the book of Ecclesiastes. In 2008, we taught through Micah in the Old Testament and Philippians and Philemon in the New Testament. In 2017, it was Job in the Old Testament and First and Second Timothy in the New Testament. Secondly, we, we pray about what the church needs, this church, local church, what, what we feel like we need collectively. Um, and that's usually instructed by what we see going on in the body and what we see going on in the culture around us. So we picked First John because we've spent a lot of time in the Old Testament the last couple of years and not as much time in the New Testament. And while we were in the New Testament, we taught through many of Paul's writings, Philemon, Philippians, First and Second Timothy, uh, but we haven't taught through uh, any book that John has written in quite some time. And finally, as we learned in the book of Ecclesiastes, there's nothing new under the sun. The same errors, the same um, the same winds that we have seen in the church and in the culture for thousands of years are the same things we see in the culture today. And we feel like 
um, John's message that was so apropos that he wrote to the first century church is a, obviously it's a timeless book because it's in the Bible, but we believe that it has particular um, application for us here in northern Colorado in 2019. Let me ask you this. Have you ever been on a road or a trail or a path with a sure confidence that you were headed in the right direction towards a planned destination only to find out you were headed into danger or that you had lost your way. Well, this has happened to me a number of times in my life. It probably doesn't give you a great amount of confidence for me to acknowledge that. But two specific times uh, came to mind. One is is, uh, Nancy and I were in California at the end of 2018. Uh, Was it 18? I think... Let me think here. Yeah, it was 2017. We were in California for a board meeting, that I, a board that I was on, and it was their annual Christmas party. So they flew Nancy out there. And when we go to California, we like to stay in Redondo Beach, but the meetings and the Christmas party is about 60 miles north in Moore Park. Well, if you know anything that was happening in L.A. County and the surrounding area in, at the end of November and beginning of December in 2017 is it was on fire. <laughs> there, was, there was fires everywhere. You could literally look over the mountains and not only see smoke, but you could see the flames. And so, um, so I rely on Google or Apple Maps to get me places where, what I, uh, when I'm not familiar with the area. But this time, I took the advice of a friend out there, and I downloaded the app Waze, W-A-Z-E. And Waze is a community-driven GPS and navigational app that guides you uh, through the shortest route possible to help you avoid things like fires, um, avoid danger. And as we were, um, we, we arrived safely, um, even though I kind of doubted the app along the way because it seemed like we were getting a little bit too close to the flames. And then we made it back to our whole hotel safely. And went, okay, praise God, uh, this app works. And then I wake up in the morning and open up the local newspaper. And on the front lines of the newspaper, it said this. Yep, Waze sent drivers into L.A. fires. So this app that I entrusted to get us from uh, the starting point to a planned destination um, worked, but it almost killed us. (laughs) Another time, I trusted a map to get Nancy and I once again to a destination. This time we were on a hut trip. We were going on a hut trip to the 10th Mountain Hut Division up between uh, uh, Leadville and Aspen. And the group that we were with, who we'd done this with several times, they went up Friday morning. And for some reason, Nancy and I and our friend Carmen couldn't go up until late um, Friday afternoon. So, so we arrived um, early evening, late afternoon on this Friday, and it was snowing hard. And so we decided to hit the trail on Saturday morning. So we got a motel room. Um, it snowed. Uh, it's massive storm. It snowed almost two feet that night. And uh, we woke up and uh, put our stuff in the car, uh, drove a little while to the trailhead, um, found the trailhead, um, put our backpacks on, um, headed, we headed out on the trail, still snowing hard. It should have taken us maybe, by my calculations, about an hour and a half 
to ski into where the hut was and where our friends were. And as the minutes turned into um, hours, um, and hours turned into a half a day, we're like six hours in. And it became evident to me that I had no idea where I was at. And, um, and I'm with my wife and another lady, and uh, I'm, I'm having a meltdown. <laughs> I'm thinking that we need to like dig in and um, spend the night because there was just, um, there's there no hut in sight. And I, I, couldn't, I couldn't figure out what happened because I made, uh, I made every turn exactly how the map said. Uh, turn right here, turn left here. The topographical mark, uh, uh, map said that it's, that it's uphill here, downhill there. And what I determined when we finally made it back to the car, probably about 9 o'clock at night, is that the map was correct, but I actually started at the wrong trailhead. I had the wrong starting place. What are these, uh, both of these instances in California and um, on the hut trip, in both of these instances, I was a little bit stressed, if you can imagine. Um, I lacked confidence as to where I was going and if I would arrive safely. And needless to say, because of the lack of confidence, there was also a lack of joy rather than a blessed assurance. So joyful confidence that you're headed safely in the right direction is dependent upon three truths. I want to start with that. Number one, the first truth is, is that you have the correct starting point. You get the correct foundation. Number two, you have a full confidence in a reliable and trustworthy source to get you there. And number three, um, you don't change one and two along the way just because the landscape and or the culture seems to change. I don't tweet. I might have tweeted a couple of times. I don't know over the years. I think maybe I thought I was tweeting and I was on Instagram. I'm not sure. Um, But I have... Uh, I follow people that tweet, and there's a couple of um, tweets yesterday, actually, that um, I read that made me pause and um, reminded me of First John. One of them went like this, written by a man. It says this, Like many, evangelicalism provided me with some wonderful gifts for a season, but I feel like I have grown beyond it, evangelicalism or Christianity, in many ways. Its tools, Christianity's tools and frameworks, are no longer sufficient to sustain me in this phase of life. While I honor my heritage, my Christian heritage, I'm mostly seeking God elsewhere. Christianity, let me say this, Christianity isn't something that works or doesn't work. Christianity at its core is a relationship. It's, it's, it's living in communion or union with the triune God. Another tweet uh, right in the same thread was from a woman that said this. She said, the world is a strange place. At my church, we have many who have moved away from evangelicalism and toward more progressive forms of Christianity. Many who have moved away from progressive 
and toward evangelical and countless variations of these themes. She's saying there's people that have moved from, from, um, from traditional orthodoxy to progressive Christianity, and there's some that have moved from progressive back to orthodox. And she, then she closes it with this. I'm glad Christianity is a house with many rooms. And let me just say this. Christianity is not a house with many rooms. It is actually one room, and it's a room that we call the kingdom of God. You see, when the church gets off track, let me say it again. The church does get off track, and here's how it gets off track. When one truth becomes unassociated with other truths. For example, we're saved by grace, and all of our sins are covered by the blood of Christ. That is a truth. But when we separate that truth, for example, that we are um, allowed to live um, any way we want, that becomes heresy. That becomes heresy when we separate um, how we're saved with the way that we're supposed to live in light of that. There are two massive detours. There's many more, but I I would say most um, detours or places where the church has historically gotten off track and deceived are as follows. Number one, when they stop believing that Jesus is the only way to the Father for everyone. When when Jesus, um, the gospel, stops being our foundation. Number two, Christians can pick and choose which of God's commands they are to obey. You see, we live in a world that is constantly making progress technologically, environmentally, and scientifically, and I personally love that. I'm a learner. Um, It's just so fun to learn about new technologies and new ways to have a cleaner environment and uh, science and medicine, the day and day. The, the day and age that we live in is just um, just elicits worship in my heart. However, as individuals, we can tend to think that progress spiritually depends upon our faith bending to the culture and the times that we live in. At times, the church can think that we can experience joy and happiness outside of loving God and loving His commands and loving others. And that's simply not true. We make progress in our lives and in the world by staying true to the gospel and its historic teaching. Paul said this to the church in Ephesus. And Paul is... Yeah, Paul, Paul said this to the church in Ephesus. And by the way, John, as we're going to learn in a little while here, is probably writing to the church in Ephesus. So, so Paul is writing to the, uh, to the leaders in the church of Ephesus shortly after that church was founded. And he said this. He said, the, the ministry of the leaders is to equip the saints for the work of ministry. This is Ephesians 4, 12 through 14. That their job, their role, their primary focus should be to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, verse 14, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. You see, in order to detect false teaching, 
to be able to um, see bad or false doctrine, someone, someone must really know true teaching. To know if we're on the right path, we need to know the one who designed the path. And we've talked about this before, that this, this time of progress that we live in, um, scientifically and technologically, in, um, in medicine and in the environment, in economics in some way, it's awesome. But there's, what grid do we look through when we read a book or listen to a podcast? Are you grounded enough in um, orthodoxy where you're going to be able to smell or taste bad doctrine and bad teaching when you read it and when you hear it? You see, brothers and sisters, we can't make progress in our living and our thinking until we grow in our convictions and confidence and assurance of who God is and who we are and how we're to live in light of these truths. And I would submit to you that um, that every human being that has ever lived um, falls into one of these four categories at different times in their life. And understanding these four categories and where we're at, it's a matter of eternal destiny for some. And for the rest of us, it's a matter of joyful fellowship. Because the reality is that God um, wants those whom he has called to himself, those whom he has called into his family, those who are citizens of his kingdom to enjoy um, fellowship with the triune God, with emphasis on joy and joy and fellowship. So here it is. The first category is fully assured. Fully assured that this is people who have the blessed assurance that God is who he says he is, his ways are the best ways, and we are who he says we are. It's, it's the place where we find complete and unwavering joy in this blessed assurance, not in our temporal circumstances. The second category is what I would call doubting believers. And you can, you, if you're taking notes, you can underline believer. Because just because you um, have doubts along the way doesn't mean that you are a, um, a Christian, a believer. And there's many people, I've been in this place myself, but there's many people, particularly those of us that come out of a, uh, a, a pretty uh, sin-soaked life that made a mess of their life and other people's lives, where at times the enemy, can, you can believe the lies of the enemy, um, and you can you can um, start experiencing condemnation, which doesn't come from God, but comes from the enemy, and you start doubting. You have questions like, can, how can God even love me? And as Christians, we need to leave room for doubt, honest doubt, not, not doubt that rails against God, but doubt that seeks to understand the truth of who God is. So fully assured, number one, doubting believers, number two. Um, number three is a conscious unbeliever. Somebody that just um, honestly um, says, um, I don't believe that crap. Um, and there's something refreshing, actually, about um, is 
is um, immoral as our culture is turning, there's something refreshing to me actually is that it's easier at times to know where people stand. Because people um, aren't uh, claiming Christianity just because their parents or grandparents were Christian or um, that America is a Christian country, for example. The fourth category is those whom have who were uh, falsely assured, who has a they have a false assurance, and this is the this is a scary category. Um, Jesus warned that many, many um, who profess to be Christians fall into this scary category. They're falsely assured. Um, they're not believers. And Jesus said this in Matthew seven twenty one through twenty three. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then Jesus said, then I will declare it to them. I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So this pastoral book, First John aims to bring blessed assurance of eternal life to all who imperfectly, um, imperfectly, direction, not perfection. This, this book aims to bring blessed assurance to all who imperfectly love Jesus, love his commands, and love his people. And I want to uh, just take a closer look here um, as we introduce this book at the context and the content of this beautiful letter. And it's important for you, for us, for everybody, (laughs) when you read God's Word is to understand the context. Because there's something called the original authoritative intent that the author, who was inspired by the Holy Spirit to write this text, had a reason for writing this text to the people that he wrote it to. In this case, it was written in the first century. And uh, John had a, had a particular motive for writing this. There was something going on in that culture and in that church that John wanted to either bring encouragement, um, conviction, or warning. First of all, John wrote the book. Well, duh. But it's not that easy. There's nowhere in this book that John introduces himself. I've got to ask the question, why do I always get books or pick books where the author never introduces himself? Solomon never introduced himself in Ecclesiastes. John never introduces himself in this letter. But here's what we know. Um, John wrote this. Tradition tells us that John wrote this. Um, scholars um, over the last couple thousand years have pointed to John writing this. Also, it's the same writing style. It's, it becomes obvious that John wrote this when you look at the gospel according to John. And just, just a tip here, if you um, are wanting to marinate in this beautiful letter, and I hope you will, I hope you'll uh, come along with us and study this um, beautiful text, not just on Sunday morning, although that's awesome, but maybe during your quiet time. Um, but chapters 13 through 17 in the Gospel of John are parallel um, chapters or passages to the letter of First John. So John wrote it. John, it's the same John who's the son of Zebedee, one of Jesus' uh, 12 disciples. 
It's written by John, um, Jesus' close friend and one of Jesus' um, uh, three inner circle disciples alongside of James and Peter. John described himself as the one who Jesus loved. It's John who stood at the foot of the cross and uh, where Jesus entrusted his mother Mary to John to take care of. Along with Peter, John witnessed the empty tomb on that first Easter morning. John talked with and fellowshiped with the resurrected Jesus. And then John, of course, wrote the fourth gospel. He is the last living apostle when he wrote this. He's an old man, probably in his late 70s or early 80s. John was most likely living in Ephesus and writing to the church in Ephesus approximately 90 90 to 95 AD, which would have been about um, 19 years after the church was established in Ephesus, and about 40 plus years, um, I should be more than that. My notes say 40 plus years, but it's it's probably more like 60 years after Jesus' uh, death and resurrection. John wrote this letter to the church because there was a reason he wrote this, because there was a schism in the church that concerned the truth of who Christ is, what he accomplished, and how true believers are to live in response to these truths. A false view of the person and work of Jesus and what it means to be uh, a Christian had crept into the church in Ephesus. John's motivation for writing this was to encourage the church to ground themselves in Orthodox Christianity as testified to by him and by the other apostles who are all eyewitnesses to Jesus' death, life, and resurrection so that they could experience the blessed assurance. So this difficulty in the church that John is writing to address, it already had reached the point that some of the members from the church, um, including some of its leaders, had separated themselves from the others, and they were in the process of setting up their own church communities. They had already defected. By the time John wrote this, they had already defected from the true faith and the true fellowship. So these false teachers um, who had left the fellowship apparently continued to keep in touch with the people in their former church, the rest of the membership, and they were actively trying to entice them to, to, to join their new group and their, quote, um, new doctrine, new theology. So once again, these, these uh, deceivers, these se- secessionists were propagating two heretical views. One is they were They denied that the historical uh, man, Jesus, was in fact the Messiah, the Son of God, came in the flesh. And then they also denied the Christian's obligation to keep God's commands, namely to believe in his Son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another. So John's point here, and this is really important, to understand and for us to be reminded of up front, John's point isn't that we behave in a certain way so that we can have blessed assurance. No, our God asks this, that we behave in a certain way. It's because of our relationship, because we are already his covenant people. You see, obedience without relationship Uh, will take you only so far, and it won't take you all the way to the finish line. That's actually called morality or salvation by works. 
And relationship without obedience, relationship without a new direction, is not a relationship at all. I also want to say this, that this is not a polemic letter. And what I mean by that is that John is not writing to the deceivers. He's not writing to the false prophets. Um, he's, he is writing to the church. He's, um, and this, this um, letter is more about God and his relationship with his covenant people than it is a letter about those who left the fellowship. And we're going to see him all throughout this book write with uh, firm authority, but also with a pastoral affection to those who profess faith in Jesus Christ. He writes to remind us and persuade us to stay true to what we already believe so that we would experience complete joy in our fellowship with the Father and the Son and His church, other believers. He will remind us, as He reminded the church in the first century, that you already have the real thing. You don't need to take anything away from it, nor do you need to add anything to it. And let me just spend a few minutes talking about the content, what we're going to see in these five chapters. And there's a a number of repeated words um, in this letter and some repeated phrases. And I would encourage you, whenever you start to read a book, um, uh, you ladies, I know many of you ladies are going through the book of Romans in the Thursday study, Heart to Heart, and also the Monday night study. And I would encourage you to do word studies. Um, Look for common words throughout the letter. Look through uh, common phrases, and it will actually help you understand the theme of that particular letter. In the letter of 1 John, God, G-O-D, is mentioned 62 times. Son, 24 times. Christ, 10 times. Antichrist, three times, which, by the way, is three out of four times that Antichrist is mentioned in the entire Bible. World, or the Greek for world is cosmos, which is mentioned 23 times. Um, These words, God, Son, Christ, world, um, signal a God-centeredness to the message of this letter with God understood explicitly in terms of the Son He sent. Evidence of God's love for the world is Jesus' life, His death, and His resurrection. And what we're going to see here is that John speaks um, speaks of the Father and the Son as being one. He says this, If you know the Son, you also know the Father. And if John had one word to describe God in this letter, it would be light. And the manifestation of that light is love. In fact, um, two times in this letter, uh, John says, God is love. And, And believe it or not, that is unique to the entire New Testament. It's the only two times in the entire two Testament. Excuse me. Wow. Easy for me to say. Um, It's the, it's the only, it's, the only two times in the entire New Testament that those three words are put together. God is love. John wants believers to have confidence or assurance. That's why he wrote this letter. He wanted the Christians then to have confidence or assurance that they are the Lord's. And he also wanted to wake up those that maybe had a false assurance. 33 times in this letter, John says, know this or have 
confidence in this. He wants his readers to have assurance of who God is and who we are and our eternal fellowship or communion with him. The apostles, the 12 apostles, most of whom were martyred, were confident about, confident about what they saw and heard. And the truth set them free to confidently and joyfully live out their faith. And I don't know about you, but I just so desire that on a daily basis. And I know I'm human, and I have my flesh, and I'm not going to fully arrive to perfection until I'm in glory. Um, but at times, um, I, I, would, I just long for by um, God's Spirit to have more of a um, joyful confidence and, and live the faith out um, in joyful obedience. Listen to Peter and John. Listen to the confidence that they had in Acts chapter 4, 16 through 20. What shall we do with these men? Let me give you a little bit of a backdrop. Um, they had just healed a man. They've been going around healing people in the name of Jesus Christ. And the, um, the Jewish leaders are upset. And they say this in verse 16. What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name, this name of Jesus. So they called Peter and John in. They called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. And Peter and John said, fair enough. We don't want to end up in jail. We don't want to end up beaten or killed. No, they didn't say that. Verse 19, they said, But Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. Their confidence uh, instructed them to live a life of uh, just joyful um, boldness, living out their faith. And then one chapter forward in Acts chapter 5, 27 through 29, and then um, at the end of that chapter in verses 40 through 42, um, it happened again. Um, Peter and John did not shut up. And so the Sadducees uh, brought all the apostles in before them. And it says this in verse, in verse 27. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than man. And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them to speak, to not speak in the name of Jesus, and they let them go. Then they left the presence of the council, the apostles did, Rejoicing, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name, the name of Jesus Christ. And then after that, after they were told to shut up, after they were beaten um, close to death, more than likely, um, and then every day in the temple, that tells you it was public, um, right where these Jewish leaders were, and every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. And then in Romans 8, 31 through 39, and this is right after Paul um, reminded believers 
Um, he gave them assurance, reminding them that they were that they were elected before the beginning of time. They were drawn or called to the Father. Uh, they were justified, declared innocent, and then that they will be glorified. And in verse thirty-one, chapter eight, it says this: "What then shall we say to these things? That we that He foreknew us, and that He called us, and that He justified us, and that He glorified us." What shall we say to these things? Do they give us confidence? Do they give us blessed assurance? Here it is. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies Who is it to condemn? Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, verse 37, no, in all things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure, I have assurance, I'm confident that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation, we will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Confidence in the truth of who God is, his promises, his character, who he says that we are, our our destination, the fact that he chose us before the beginning of time, the fact that he sent his only son to die for us. Confidence in these truths set us free to unashamedly and joyfully, um, imperfectly, might I add, live it out. And then a word that we're going to see all throughout 1 John, I haven't counted it up, but it's well over a dozen times, it's the word abide. And I can't wait to do a word study on abide and tease through some messages on what it means to abide in Christ because I believe that it's abiding in Christ and in His Word that we increase our confidence and our blessed assurance. It's in tasting and seeing that the Lord is good that our confidence in the timeless and eternal gospel increases. The book of Ecclesiastes that we just finished a month or so ago spoke of the vanity of abiding in everything under the sun but Jesus. 1 John reminds us of the joy of abiding in Christ and his good commands. The end. The end. If there's there's one um, overarching goal for John, I believe it is that we would have fellowship or communion with the triune God. That's a narrative of the entire Bible from Genesis uh, chapter 3, really maybe all the way back to Genesis chapter 1 through Revelation 21, is that we were created in the image of the triune God for fellowship or communion with Him. And evidence that we are in a relationship, in fellowship, in communion with the triune God is this. The evidence is that we love God, we love people, 
and we love his commandments, that there's a direction toward loving God and loving people, the first and second greatest commandments, and then loving his commandments, all of his commandments. And then finally, I want to finish up on this, that John said five different times in this short letter, I write these things. I write these things. He said in in chapter 1, verse 4, I write these things to make our joy complete. I write these things in chapter 2, verse 1, so that we may not sin. I write these things in two, chapter 2, verse 26, so that you wouldn't be deceived. I write these things in chapter 5, 13 through 14, so that uh, you may know that you have eternal life. And then finally, I write these things, chapter 5, 19 through 20, so that you may know him. Know from the Greek word genesko, which means have intimacy with him. Not just know about him, but know, about, know him intimately. And then we'll see that John will give us a number of signposts along the road of life to help those who profess to be Christians to actually possess blessed assurance of knowing that you're on the right road. He's given these signposts to us so that we might have confidence and in our confidence, joy. And here are John's three signposts, once again, to assure us that we're on the right road that leads to eternal life. And I want to say that these are not three things that we do to earn salvation, just so I don't get texts or emails after this. But there are three indicators that God has indeed saved us and therefore will keep us. Number one, the first signpost is, is do you believe in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and that he is the only way to the Father? Number two, do you strive to live a righteous life? Number three, Are you generous towards other Christians? Two and three are about direction, not perfection. Living righteously and and, um, being generous towards other Christians. And we don't strive to live this way so that we can be assured. We live this way in response to our assurance. Let me say that again. We don't strive to live a righteous life or to be generous towards other Christians so that we can have blessed assurance. We live this way in response to the blessed assurance that we already have. So finally, this pastoral book will bring blessed assurance of eternal life to all who imperfectly love Jesus, love his commands, and love his people. And my prayer is for us is that as we study this letter together is that uh, you would increase in your blessed assurance and that blessed assurance um, would produce joy. And I pray that that blessed assurance would be founded upon a, a more intimate walk with your Savior, with the triune God, communion and fellowship. And in turn, I pray that we would be a a gospel-centered church. We'd continue to be a gospel-centered church. We'd be a light in northern Colorado, 
that would be um, that um, that the gospel uh, would be held out and it would um, and the, the Lord would use us to draw people to himself. Let me pray. Father, thank you for um, this book that we're embarking upon. Pray, God, that you'd be honored and glorified. God, I'm just uh, excited, even in my own heart, my own life, uh, to, um, to be able to walk in complete joy, uh, complete joy um, that is rooted um, in um, um, fellowship, communion um, with you. Um, so thank you. Um, I look forward to seeing, God, um, how you bring yourself glory and how you uh, transform each of us um, f- um, more into your likeness. And God, I pray also that you would save some um, as a result of the um, faithful teaching of this book. We love you. We thank you that you loved us first. And we pray all of these things in the powerful and matchless name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ.